and a happy Wednesday. Welcome to Main Street. I'm Ashley Thornburg in studio with my co-host, Craig Blumenshine. Happy Wednesday it is, Ashley. <laughs> and Craig, coming up in the second half of the show, you've got a segment on drones. Talking drones with the North Dakota UAS. That stands for Uncrewed Aircraft Systems Council. Looking forward to that interview. We're doing a lot of things that are happening in space, <laughs> basically, because uh, you're kicking off today's show with the final installment of your series from the Air Force Base. And actually, that's right. Before I introduce that final segment, I want to express my sincere thanks to Abigail Kinder. She serves as the Community Relations and Media Operations Advisor for the 5th Bomb Wing Public Affairs Group. She's a civilian employee, and she has been exceptional in her efforts with me. She granted us unparalleled access to several various dedicated service members in key locations at the Air Force Base, and she was my liaison during our time at the Air Force Base, nothing but a consummate professional the entire time. So a heartfelt thanks to Abigail. Now, I do want to introduce our final segment today. We're honored to have Staff Sergeants Trevon Walker and Trenton Pierce joining us. These dedicated servicemen provide an insightful look into the stringent security protocols, intricate technical processes, and the profound responsibility associated with managing some of the world's most formidable intercontinental ballistic missiles. These are nuclear-tipped, and they're located throughout the expansive silos in North Dakota. They confront daily challenges, most notably the harsh weather conditions, 24-7, 365. And essentially, they man missile launch facilities, Ashley. And here's my interview with the two servicemen. Staff Sergeant Walker, let me begin with you. How did you end up here? Well, I did two years of college, I'll say that. So when I got here, my route here was a little bit different than some of my peers. I ended up running out of money. I was a little indecisive with my major, so I started you know, moving around and looking for different avenues and stuff to get my degree in. And ultimately, I decided to join the military. Air Force wasn't my first option. I wanted to do Coast Guard at first, and I got impatient. And I immediately turned to the Air Force. My brother was Army, and uh, he said he didn't like Army. So I went ahead and I'm like, all right, that's all I need to know. And I went to the Air Force, joined, and I ended up getting this job. Came all the way out here to Minot, and surprisingly, I like it here. Grew up in, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, so my journey was a little bit different. I graduated from high school early to enlist. Air Force was the first option. Came straight here, got this job, moved up here, been here ever since. Family has a history of military service. All my aunts and uncles were in the Army or the Marines. Uh, my grandfather was in the Army. And just doing that just kind of inspired me to enlist myself. So we're in the launch training facility. But essentially what this simulates is the silo in the ground where a nuclear ICBM would be staged and launched. Is that accurate? Yes, sir. When you come into a, a launch facility, how does that process work? So we start at the top. Um, we have the A-Vault system, which we have security forces open up, unlock the A-Vault so that we can access the lock for the primary door. We unlock that, raise it up, then we go down and there's the B-plug, just right here. And it has a 60-minute timer. We input our combos and then we have to wait 60 minutes at, before it lowers to grant us access into the launch facility. So you're waiting an hour Yes, sir. Before you can come in? Yes, sir. It's to give our security forces time if anyone were to try and access the site who isn't supposed to be there, it gives our security forces time to respond. Once you're down, typically what are your responsibilities? What do you do? It depends a lot. And as it relates to my job directly, I am only down here if I actually just want to see things. So if I'm trying to, this is MHG, so I'm a missile handling team chief. Uh, what we typically do is we are in charge of handling the actual booster. So it comes in, Hill processes it, Hill Air Force Base, they uh, end up shipping it out to us. We do our inspection and we see it and then we drive it to and from 
LFs. So we're typically all top side in all of our maintenance that we do. We sit there, we line them up on those lines that I, that I was talking about. You have about an inch and a half uh, margin of error to, to back this up, and you can't see the, the pylons behind you. You line that up as they're doing their thing. So they have the cops, and then they have MMT team. They're doing their codes. So we have about an hour before we can even work. So that gives us time so we can actually get our uh, job going. And again, like, we're all top side. We stay in the weather the entire time. So then all of your work is done, and then everything is lowered down? And then we essentially are, the TE stands for a transport erector. So we have these actuators on the side powered by hydraulics. And once we get tied down and we position the missile in a proper secure way, we'll be able to eventually erect the missile all the way up, all the way vertical. And then you can lower it down once we get the proper permissions that the tube is clear. We get permissions that there's no personnel in there and everything is good and ready to go. The vaults are open. They can go in there and start working. And that's when we can finally lower the missile down. What do you guys think about the massive power of the devices, the nuclear bombs that you're working with? Uh, it can be very humbling and then also very terrifying knowing like what you're working on is so important. And it definitely inspires a lot of diligence and making sure that you're doing the correct thing. Because knowing that if you mess up, not only like are you potentially damaging millions of dollars of equipment, like you are setting back national security, you're causing problems all the way up the chain causing massive problems that you probably won't even see that are discussed in meetings with people with way higher pay grades than I have. In terms of the, the power and firepower that's behind this, it's very humbling. Like you said, my first time seeing a missile, I was, I was in shock. I was like, this, not only in size, uh, in, in terms of how large it is when you look at it, but in terms of what it can do. And that's what we go through with all of our classes. We take classes so we can fully understand exactly what we're doing. And because we have different jobs and they separate it, that responsibility is moved, you know, and moved in different areas. Because again, I drive the missile around. That's like our primary objective is to move it to where it needs to be. When you think about that, you see 18 wheelers and you see these truckers, like regular you know, everyday jobs, you know, and, and they're doing this job. And it's like, I'm doing the same thing, but with something so much more explosive, something that has so much more weight behind it. And it's really humbling and you have to really respect it to actually do it because a lot of people, they get in there, oh, it's not too bad. And then you finally teach them, show them the ropes. And it's like, I never knew it was like this. What are your biggest challenges in doing your work every day? And Staff Sergeant Walker, I'll start with you. Uh, the biggest challenges I face while doing my job, from Minot, North Dakota, I would definitely say weather. Weather is one of the biggest challenges. We have people from all walks of life that have never experienced snow, never experienced cold, never experienced temperatures below 30. And that just makes everything a lot more difficult. You know, not necessarily that our equipment will mess up, but sometimes just mentally, you're going through a whole lot just to keep yourself warm, to keep yourself thinking straight. And then on top of that, you have this massive power behind you that you're working on. So being able to overcome the cold, and just know that the people to your left and right are also going through the same thing and you have to just push through it. It's one of the biggest obstacles I had to face and, and overcome. Seth Sergeant Pierce? Again, absolutely. Here in Minot, North Dakota, it's got to be weather. I'm coming in and it's wind chills down to like negative 60. You're working with cold metal objects. You're trying to keep warm. You're trying not to mess anything up. And then you got the snow because obviously we have to open up the launch closure. There's snow piled up there. You have to spend two, three hours clearing that out because we don't have any bobcats or anything like that to clear it so it's all done by hand so doing all of that and having that time sink that you have to put into it can definitely be a challenge once the missile is down in its silo then what are your responsibilities so for us uh, once it's down it's definitely getting it tied down getting into proper configuration starting to connect cables and everything like that 
And then after the actual downstages are here, tied down and everything, then it's waiting till the next day so that we can get the rest of the components out here and get those connected. And once everything's connected, pardon me if this is a silly question, how do you know that it will work if it's asked to do its job? Capsule has a fault system, so it runs constant checks, constant diagnostics on itself, constantly giving feedback back to Capsule over all of its systems. So we constantly have feedback and a monitoring system on there to make sure that all systems are firing up and ready to go. And for me personally, um, it's something that we have discussed amongst ourselves and peers when you first get in the shop is how do you know it works? And not only do we have capsule monitoring and make sure everything is going, on, going according to plan, but we do have our test launches. And to be a part of that has been such a game changer for me personally. I always had faith that it worked, but to actually see it work. And it's the fact that we will take a missile that is already in our silos or in our hole that will take one from Minot, will take one from F.E. Warren or take one from Alstrom, and they will send it off to Vandenberg so we can actually do these test launches. And then we go through the same process that we do go through here on our day-to-day -day basis, and you finally get to see it. And you put it in the hole, and then they give us this opportunity to do this, our, our glory shot, and we get to see it actually launch for our test launch. And that is something that when I saw it, I was like, this is for sure. I, I know this works, and I have every faith that when, when we if need be, we'll be okay. Is what happens at Minot Air Force Base the same at Epi Warren or at Maelstrom? Is it, is it all the same or is it different? Uh, in terms of how similar they would be, we have drive times, which is, um, so yeah, they would be different. The actual nature of the job, that would typically be the same where we all have TOs that we go over, so our technical data and our technical order and how we do our job. All of that mostly is the same. There are some sites or some bases that do things slightly different, but that's all written in our TO as well, on what they would do different. But for the most part, I'll say about 90% of the job in terms of getting the missile in the hole or taking the missile out the hole, same with your job, is will all typically be the same. But we have some driving distance changes. So our farthest site is about an hour and a half in terms of drive distance away. Malmstrom, they have one that's over three hours oh. away. Yes. So typically tell me what you do when you come on site. How long will you be there for a shift before you get to come back to base? It can be anywhere from 12 to 16 hours typically. So typically you're out for at least 12 hours. Um, there are obviously complications that you run into and that can push your timeline to 16. 16 is when they'll send out a relief team because you're no longer obviously safe to drive on the road while carrying equipment and everything. Yes, sir. Um, we have, there's been, there's a, we have outliers. We do have outliers uh, situations where sometimes we need things done uh, in a more dire scenario. And we can get extensions, but they do ask. They don't, they don't just, all right, cool. You're sitting here for 12, we're gonna move you to 16. And then it doesn't, oh, cool, now you're going to 18. That's not something they do because truthfully, they do care about us and our well-being and being able to protect the asset as well. So to get an extension anywhere past 12, it has to be routed up to, cool, we, we need to do a 14 or we need to do 16 that has to be agreed upon with the personnel, your team chief, your site soups, and your leadership if they're willing to do that. And sometimes my longest day in the field actually has been 18 hours. And it was something that it, it, complications happened on site and yeah. the mission, we, we were all capable. We all said we were okay with it and our leadership trusted us enough to actually get the job done and they allowed us to go for an 18. So like anything that is somewhat mechanical, things can, like you say, maybe go wrong or not go quite as planned. What do, you, what do you spend a lot of your time working with when you come on site that you wish you didn't have to do over and over? That is such a good well, I know question. for, and in terms of microfield, it's gonna be the lock pin for the launcher closure door. 
sometimes that has problems either going up or going down when it sits in the same configuration for so long mechanical systems get stuck. Mm -hmm. So if it comes down and then it's having trouble going back into the same configuration, we can have a lot of problem with that. Then it's waiting on a parts run for a specific part to fix it or waiting on direction from higher ups in order to get an ETAR or anything like that. What's an ETAR? It is permission from engineers to circumvent technical data. So doing things outside of tech data to solve a problem that is authorized by the engineers who design it. Because of our job and the nature of our job, we split our teams up into two different sides. We have inside technicians and we have outside technicians. And for an inside technician, typically on a missile remove, so if we're taking our silo, we're taking the missile out the silo, putting it back on the road and sending it back to either hill or relocating that missile, I would say one of the biggest challenges that we go through or the biggest difficulty in terms of mechanical stuff that we have would be our uh, bands. So these bands that we have will actually attach, it goes around the top of our missile and attach to these carriages that move back and forth to position, to properly position our missile inside of our TE, our transport erector. And those bands weigh, I would say anywhere from, I want to say there's like 95 pounds, one band. And we have our inside technicians responsible for taking this band, there's two of them, uh, definitely these are first stage bands. We have, they're responsible for taking these bands, tying them down, torquing them to a proper set value. What makes it so difficult is how tight these places are. We are dealing with people that have to traverse down these silos. Like you have your missile here and you have the wall of the truck right next to you. And we have individuals in there bending over, they're in awkward compromising positions. You're sometimes upside down trying to get things torqued to the right value and the torque value is high, the torque value is in the hundreds that you have to get these down and the, the angle makes it super complicated. You can possibly drop your torque wrench, you can drop tools, you can drop your actual handle, and all of that makes it super difficult for actually getting the job done. Colonel Slaybaugh was telling us earlier about the renovations that will be happening soon, maybe within a year, two or three, here at Minot Air Force Base relative to the ICBMs. Do you anticipate your jobs being really different or very similar when those happen? Or do you know? Personally, in terms of the differences, I, I do not know, personally. Um, my anticipation, however, would be that it, it should get easier. But I, I do expect it to get harder first. And that's what almost every change when it comes to the Air Force and every change that we have here is that we, is we have to relearn. We have to relearn certain things and go over it and out with the old and in with the new. And that process I would see becoming harder for the older seasoned technicians and team chiefs because we get, we get, uh, we establish a habit and a routine that really helps us get through the day. And then adding new things could possibly uh, hinder that, that routine, but it doesn't mean it wouldn't get easier down the line. I want to say that all changes that we have been trying to make should make the job naturally easier. Staff Sergeant Pierce, do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Any change is going to be hard, especially in a job like this where you're going to be out here for long hours and you have to establish that routine and get it down to muscle memory in order to complete your job in a timely manner. Any change, especially renovations that they're planning on making, should definitely make the job a little bit easier. So this is called the uh, first LER, the okay. launch equipment room. Let's, let's continue on with our tour. Where are we going to go next? All right, so we can actually move here. So our, one of our main objectives when we first get down into the LER is to install our work cage. So you're opening two thick so these, steel doors. Yeah, so these, we call these the barn doors. They give us access to the actual launch tube itself. 
And this is our work cage. This is what we use to traverse the launch tube and go all the way, actuate all the way down so that we can work on lower components. This device that I'm looking here is almost like a cover for an ICBM. Yes, so that's the cover for the third stage. So that covers the actual down stages before we can, to protect it, before we can put on our components. So we'll remove that whenever we lower down the other components to stack on top of it. This would be, uh, if we break it down into, essentially, if we, we can do like anatomy, essentially, uh, this would be the body. This was neck down, I would call this uh, the, the missile. And then you guys will have a the actual head, I will call it, that will go on later. But this would be essentially the neck down from uh, your, your missile here. Absolutely. So that's the entire delivery system. What we have up in the truck right now, we have the warhead, we have the brains, and then we have the post-boost control system, which will control after it exits the atmosphere. A complete warhead would be inside a silo how long before it would be removed to be serviced and then placed back in? So depending on the component depends on when we swap them out. So we swap out individual components a lot more often than we swap out complete down stages. So for our warheads, we swap them out about every three years, I want to say. Um, and then I'm not sure how long it is for the MGS, the missile guidance system. Uh, terms for the actual downstage boosters, that can be in the hole until it is essentially time to change those out. We have a, a solid rocket motor down, a solid rocket motor fuel. And so we don't have, it's, it's there ready to go at all times. And I have been to sites that haven't been touched in over 10 years. Wow. I've been to sites that have just been in place last week. It really depends on what needs to be done and what the capsule is calling for. If something is going wrong, there's alarms going on. During winter, uh, we can flood. Uh, we try our best to make sure it doesn't happen. But if we do flood, it'll also cause time for removing the actual, the entire downstage as well. So the, the actual downstage can be in the hole for a very long time. Yeah, typically from my experience, we remove downstages most for sites that are going into PDM, which is just a refurbishing of the inside of the launch tube itself. So refurbishing the suspension system, any of the mechanical components on the walls, like if there's cracks and welts or anything like that, then we send out our civilian force to come out and actually do repairs, corrosion painting, stuff like that. Yeah. Is your work double checked and triple checked what security is kind of built into what you do? So down here, this entire area is what we call TPC or two-person concept. So you have to have two people basically checking each other's work at all times passively. So you always have to be in contact with another person. We also have another concept called command and response. So everything that you're doing, you're vocalizing it and saying exactly what you're doing. You're repeating back what the other person is saying, checking them on what they're doing. Um, so everything is checked and then you have your team chief up here in this window who's reading directly out of our technical orders to make sure that their technicians are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And same for us uh, on top side. We don't have the two-person concept on uh, our top side where we do our main work, but we do have spots in the TO, our technical order, that directly states when team chiefs should put an eye on something else that has been done. Or we have verification process that we established just throughout the MHG culture where if things are done, you need to have a second eye on it. So you have your two inside technicians, your two outside technicians. We have the call and response that is pretty much standard throughout all of our missile maintenance. Uh, but that is when we essentially, we're always hearing out, listening to hear what is being read off, what is being done. And then you just, we, we typically like to quiz people too, uh, this time of, if they're doing something, I know they're supposed to be doing it. I'm asking, all right, cool, what's your torque value? And I, I need to hear out the correct answer because I know they're doing the right job. And then you go back around, you verify, you, you, you check everything. And at that point, you're good to go. You have your site soups that they can go around and check as well. 
And as it goes down in here, especially with the actual downstage itself, that's not just checked by us when we receive it. We have our you know, pre-inspection when we get it and we look at it and we inspect the entire missile um, from the nozzles to the cork to see if it's not, it's not damaged, cracked, there's nothing going there. But that inspection is even farther implemented when we actually put it down in the uh, launch tube because MMT, they have their own inspection that they do on the cork in the entire downstage too. So we're always being checked and triple checked. So this window right here is called the Team Chief window. This is where the Team Chief sits so that he can watch both technicians and see exactly what they're doing. This is where he does his spot checks. And then he can actually go out onto the board right there and access everything that his board man's working on. And this window, so to speak, it's a half inch thick steel plate that opens up and allows him to see or her to see down into the silo. Yes, sir. What's this device? So this is called the retraction actuator. If you look out here, you'll see that big cable that's hanging by that chain hoist. Mm -hmm. So that's called the upper umbilical. It's what talks to the MGS and signals the capsule for anything. So that's where all of the diagnostic and all of that goes through. Okay. And whenever the missile launches, there on the handwheel, there's a squib that gets screwed in there and that will blow, shearing the center shaft where it connects to the MGS. And this retraction actuator pulls the umbilical back so that it's not in the way of any other components as it launches. So right here, this is the lock pin. So this is what locks the launcher closure door. Down under here, we have four ballistic gas generators. All four of them blow and fill with gas. It fills the chambers inside, pulling this down and then slingshotting the launcher closure off of its rails. And if you look up from here, you can actually see the cables stretched across the launcher closure. Very violent moment. Yes, I would it is. If I'm not mistaken, um, you might be able to correct me on this one. During cell launches, don't we only use one? Yes, so it yep. can launch, like open up the launch closure with only one ballistic gas generator firing. We have four of them to prevent any mishaps from happening. If one doesn't fire, it has three more that are still going to fire and launch that. So uh -huh. redundancy is to make sure that nothing can go wrong. And like you said, it's a very, very violent opening, essentially, because uh, during SELM, you have that one that goes off, and you can still feel it during our SELM. That's our uh, simulated electronic uh, launch, launch. And that is, just, again, one. It just And you can feel it. We have people around us watching it, kind of making sure everything works, and that one goes off like, oh, that's nice. So you tack on three more. It's very abrupt. So right here is the distribution box. All power in the site gets routed through here. So whenever we're working on any explosive or any electrical components, everything whatever we're working on gets unplugged. All of the uh, plugs are labeled so that we know what we're working on. And then just behind you right here is the cooler for the coolant for the MGS. The MGS is kind of like a giant computer and like any computer it needs to be cooled off. And so we use this liquid cooling, we use sodium chromate and it goes through here, chills and then goes up through the umbilical into the MGS flows back through to come back and be rechilled. So all of these drawers are mostly MMT. I don't have a whole lot of knowledge about those things, so I can't <laughs> tell you a whole lot. Said MMT. Uh, that is the mechanical maintenance team. And then EMT is the electrical maintenance team. Different circuits, et cetera, that they pull out on this. It's almost like a drawer. Yeah. It's exactly a drawer. It you is. flip Absolutely. these switches and then you push these buttons and this whole thing can slide out. So this is the shock isolated floor. So if we were to be attacked and they were to launch a nuclear strike against our sites, this is to protect all of our electrical components. 
So this whole floor on an actual site can move back and forth. So it's supposed to, if it were to be attacked, the whole ground would shake. And this is to allow the components to move and survive that contact. Main Street's Craig Blumenshine in conversation with Staff Sergeants Trevon Martin and Trenton Pierce. Still to come on Main Street, we're talking drones. That's after this. Lots of listeners have complimented Ashley Thornburg's interviewing skills over the years, and so have plenty of her guests. Hi, my name is Bonnie Sommerfeld. I'm from Fargo, North Dakota, originally Valley City, North Dakota. I love all things Main Street. I'm a total fan. And when I come in to be interviewed by Ashley, it's so wonderful. I'm asked questions that are poignant, and I learn things about myself by answering the questions that I did not even know I had or that existed. So I just always look forward to it, and I hope everybody else does too. If you appreciate thoughtful questions and hosts that take the time to listen, then step up and support Main Street and all the things you enjoy on Prairie Public with the gift of financial support. Just go to prairiepublic.org and open the red link that says Donate. Welcome back to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg with Craig Blumenshine. Ashley, good to see you again. And our second segment today is about drones. You teased that a little bit earlier. We're learning more about the North Dakota Unmanned Aircraft Systems. UAS is the mnemonic council with Matt Dunlavey. He's the president and CEO of the council. And Kenley Nebker, he's the chairman of the ND UAS Council and executive director of Train ND Northwest. Pleasure to visit with you, Matt. Pleasure to be here, Craig. Thank you very much. I've been a huge fan of Prairie Public and Main Street for a very long time. Well, we're glad to have you on the show for sure. And also with this is Kenley Nebaker. Kenley is the chairman of the ND UAS Council and also the executive director of Trend Trend ND Northwest. Kenley, it's a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you for having us on, Craig, and thank you for the work that Prairie Public does to keep the public informed. Well, we appreciate that. Let's start with the primary mission I guess, and vision of the North Dakota Unmanned Autonomous Systems or Uncrewed Aircraft Systems Council. What's its genesis and what's the mission? Kenley, let me start with you. Well, uh, from, from my perspective, the, the mission and, and genesis is really about trying to find a way to, within the state, grow and develop uh, autonomous systems throughout throughout the state. We really want to see these efforts go. Uh, in my day job, I'm in workforce training. And one of the things when you're in workforce training is that you know that North Dakota does not not have enough workforce, nor will it ever have enough workforce to to do all the work that we that we need to do. Autonomy is is one of the is one of the uh, solutions that that I personally see and am passionate about and trying to find solutions for our workforce shortages. So. When I see those letters now, I think drones. It's really more than that, and I think we'll get into that. But Matt, if you could, how did this promulgate through the legislature, and how did you come to be? Absolutely, Craig. And you know, I appreciate you even just as you have first seen this council and you're looking at the letters and the acronyms there. Uh, I appreciate you differentiating the uncrewed aircraft systems and the unmanned autonomous systems. You know, in our in our council's name. Uh, it's a it's an interesting time in our industry just with that nomenclature getting out there. So I can appreciate you wrapping your arms around it immediately. The genesis of the council really came from a conversation that I was having with our vice president for legislative affairs and with a couple of legislators in the North Dakota House of Representatives, namely uh, Representative Mike Nathy and Representative Porter. Uh, great guys. And they were talking about how 
you know, there needs to be another voice. There needs to be more voices of our industry, you know, first, you know, and this is where we first planted our flag as a state in the uncrewed aircraft systems sector, but also in the broader autonomous sector. So any autonomous type technologies. And so we came back to them with the mission of, look, we want to form a 501c6 to promote and advocate for the UAS industry in North Dakota and provide ongoing opportunities for networking, sharing and community outreach. And, and, you know, I'd say we've done a fantastic job of executing and accomplishing our mission since then. I think networking and I think advocacy, as I've come to learn more about your function and your mission. Kenley, am I right about that? I'm sure there's so much more than just those two words. No, I think that that's a really good, uh, really great sum up. All, all towards the the end goal of of growing autonomous uh, systems throughout the throughout the state. Absolutely. So when we think about North Dakota, I mean, I immediately think about drones and UAS systems just because they're so prevalent here. What are the issues that are out there today that both of you are concerned about relative to either what's already happened? or going forward? What is it that, that is most important in your minds? Well, I'll, I'll start, I guess. Um, I think that for, for me and, and my experience and what we've been trying to do as a, as a training organization in, in the UAS realm, regulation is definitely definitely probably the top of, of everybody's list. Uh, and, and it's very interesting because the state as a whole is very, very friendly from a regulation standpoint, but the, the regulation from the, from the federal standpoint can be, can be a bit overwhelming. Although I, I can say in the past uh, year and a half or so, it has gotten quite a bit better. A lot of, a lot of nice improvement there uh, from the federal side of things. The other big thing is, is, infrastructure to allow beyond visual line of sight flight uh, autonomy and, and that's being worked on by the state and i'm sure we'll get to vantas down the road but uh th- that piece is is really being worked on so i uh, think of infrastructure like you're speaking about as like cell phone towers similar to that but applicable just to these systems yeah, similar to that, only a shared network, right? So that you don't have company A building their own infrastructure, company B building their own infrastructure, a shared network of, of infrastructure that allows for safe uh, integration uh, into the airspace or onto the ground if it's, ro- if it's road-based, underwater if it's water-based, so on and so forth. Matt, what are your top priorities either now in the past or moving forward? And, and that's a great question to be asking representatives of uh, such a council, you know, in our state and in other states, you know, and like Kenley mentioned, a big thing is going to be the, the regulations. So from a, from a national perspective, uh, the federal regulations from a state perspective, there have been bills that are good and some that we don't think are so good that have gone through or have been killed in the, the North Dakota uh, legislature. So um, just making sure that the laws don't get too restrictive, like Kenley mentioned. But uh, I like to think of, you know, this same question can be asked to industry partners. So uh, one of the uh, other entities that I'm a part of, uh, I founded a company and I'm the CEO of an organization called Ethero. So we use unmanned aircraft systems to uh, fly around uh, buildings in North Dakota and elsewhere in the country and artificial intelligence to calculate the heat escape and give a full health analysis of these buildings. And so when you think about what Kenley mentioned in terms of the regulations, you know, that sometimes hinders us from being able to execute our mission. uh, If we're say uh, close to an airport, 
Um, and we totally get why there's airspace restrictions there, but you know, we, we want to be thinking about the, the education side of the house so that operators know not to fly in restricted airspace. Then, you know, another thing that comes top of mind is the technology standpoint. So we want to be flying aircraft that can fly in high winds because sometimes the wind will come off the, the buildings and get in the way of us collecting a uniform data set. And then, you know, another thing, you know, just for our industry, I've been in it for over 10 years now. It's not always a, you know, a smooth flowing as far as funding goes uh, sector. You know, we get feast and famine and we get seasonality. So making sure that we get funding to keep our company going, funding to keep our industry as a whole going, say from federal or state grants, things like that. So things that come top of mind are going to be regulations. They're going to be uh, education, the technology. And, you know, even when we talk about some of the big other industry players from other potentially adversarial nations like China, we, we want to start thinking about security as well. So there's a lot of different hot button issues in our sector, all of which we like to address at the council and at with each of our in, different industry members. When I think of regulation relative to airspace, federal regulation is what is on the top of my mind. How is the intersection then between what the FAA wants to do and maybe what the state of North Dakota would like to do? Where do those two entities come together? And are they are there different rules state to state then relative to how UAS systems can operate? Yes, yeah, that's a great question. And so there are there are rules that come out from the FAA and the DOT. There are rules that come out from Congress. And then there's the patchwork of rules between each different state and, and cities, for example. You know, sometimes cities have ordinances where, you know, helicopters can't land within city limits or something like that because they've had issues with private companies coming in and giving free helicopter rides and getting in the way of traffic or, or other issues like that. And if those city laws apply to unmanned aircraft systems, then, you know, pilots have to be that, you know, as well informed as possible to make sure that they're not getting uh, or running afoul of different laws. So there is a patchwork. Usually we can rely on, on federal preemption. And then, you know, there, there's other different interesting laws that come out. You know, in, in the South, one of the states was considering only allowing people to purchase drones that had been manufactured in that state if they want to fly in that state. And so, you know, you can see that sometimes uh, legislation comes out that might be stifling on a state level. And, you know, that's why other other states are, are standing up U.S. councils, similarly to what we've got in North Dakota. Enjoying our conversation with Matt Dunleavy. He's the president and CEO of the ND UAS Council, the ND Uncrewed Aircraft Systems Council, and Kenley Nebaker. He's the chairman of ND UAS. Gentlemen, tell me some interesting uses of drones that I'm not aware of right here in North Dakota. Oh, I love this question. Um, there's so many great things happening with, with, uh, with drones throughout the state and so much more potential to be had. You know, Matt and I had a great, uh, had a great meeting with someone who's, who's spraying pasture land out West here, getting into places that, uh, ranch ranchers cannot get on, on four wheelers, on UTVs, on, on whatever, getting down into, into river bottoms, getting down, uh, between trees, so on and so forth, and being able to spray in an efficient and affordable way using, using drones. Uh, that's one of my, my new favorites, uh, and, and one of the, one that we're, uh, we're getting ready to start training people on. You know, data collection is is a huge part of, of the UAS industry. Collecting data in efficient, 
um, large amounts of data in, in an efficient way. And that's a blessing and a curse. The curse being that you have a lot of data that's been gathered very efficiently and something has to be done with that data. And so there's, there's challenges that come from that, but you know, construction, I'm, we're flying missions for a, a company out West here that is allowing their engineer to not have to travel over from Germany, saving them tons of money just by flying UAS around, around that construction site and, and getting him pictures consistently. So there's lots of really cool uses and I'll, I'll turn it over to Matt cause he's got a lot more as well. Yeah, and honestly, I remember that meeting that I had with Kenley recently, the using UAS to do precision aerial application, fungicide, pesticide, herbicide, and aerial irrigation. You know, that's something we dreamt about 10 years ago, and that it's actually finally, you know, ha, pun intended, taking off here is just absolutely fantastic. And that's the so, concept where uh, the drone sees one weed, zaps that weed instead of the whole area around the weed, et cetera, et cetera. Generally, is that kind of what you're talking about? Exactly. And that saves time in terms of you can get to that as the crow flies. You can you can pick that one out using another different drone. If it's got the AI to pick out a weed and it can differentiate between other you know species, you're saving money on only having to spray one small part of the field while still increasing the yield and and making sure that you know you're as a farmer delivering as high quality a product as you possibly can and it's getting there faster than, you know, having to fly, uh, drive yourself to wherever your crop duster is and um, doing a pre-flight and getting up in the air, getting to the correct altitude and making sure it's full. You know, you can just press a button as long as you're there and you were already prepared and, and zap that weed. So I, I love that. And that's a robotics. I mean, there's some remote sensing in there, but more of a robotics type mission that's being executed in North Dakota as as well as anywhere else in the country because of the you know high per capita subject matter experts in UAS that we have in North Dakota. Another robotics mission that you've seen in North Dakota, you know, perhaps better than elsewhere, is using drones to string power lines. So actually carrying the conductor wire up and connecting that to a distribution pole or a transmission pole, you know, that's another robotics mission. But then you know, when you're talking about the data collection, I've really loved what I've seen from the Department of Emergency Services and doing search and rescue missions with drones and the way in which they're able to task resources and they're quick on their feet. And, you know, that is kind of the premise of how drones bring value to humanity. You know, drones save lives. These are the guys that are also using drones uh, to, to go and rescue these people that, you know, might be missing. So um, kudos to them. And, you know, on the, and I'm sure we're going to get to this later, but the Vantis network, uh, just seeing how the use of drones on uh, the, the radars that we have from Talus, uh, they're the system integrator from Vantis, um, really opens doors to more use cases that are going to continue to, to, to really just captivate, not just the subject matter experts and the pilots that are flying the drones, but the population at large. Both of you have mentioned the word data today. And I'm wondering if some of our listeners just wondered, okay, what are they collecting about me or my land that I'm not aware of? And should I be concerned about it? And where are the guardrails relative to this? I'll, I'll let Matt take this one because last time I tried to answer this question, it ended up in about a 45 minute conversation. So. <laughs> well, yeah. And so the you know the on the face of it mission or, or reason why drones can can bring value to societies because they can save lives 
you know, but they can also help save money and they can also help create value or, or generate revenue. So, and that's where the data really is. So we're, we're flying drones or unmanned aircraft systems, uncrewed aircraft systems for remote sensing purposes. And you are just creating data at a high rate. I mean, you can collect multiple terabytes per aircraft per day, depending on the suite of sensors that you have on there. And what types of data, Matt? I mean, are we talking about everything from topography to temperature to et et cetera, et cetera? Give us some detail. Yeah, topography survey with LIDAR, uh, photogrammetry with electro-optical surveys. You can fly with like what Ethero does, IR and, and thermal sensors. You can fly all of these uh, sensors simultaneously in concert as well um, for, for multiple different types of missions. So like you've got the, you know, to quote Star Wars here, you've got the Imperial probe droid that can get out there and it's a drone and it can collect everything. And it's the the one bird to say, rule them all. You know, anything, whether it's a passive or an active sensor, you know, that, that goes on a drone can get out there and there's any different number of just use cases and data sets, data types, and, and volumes of data that you're able to collect with uncrewed aircraft systems. So the, the next step past that though, is is also the artificial intelligence so one of the issues that we've got is that you know it takes a a particular um skill set to go and and get the aircraft in the air and make sure that it's generating something that's valuable and then it takes another human to have spent a career in a particular industry to show you where say there's a an extra you know area of heat escape on a building or where they're on a conductor wire, there's a fray because the pilot who collects the data knows how to fly and fly everything, but they don't know exactly where the issues might be that make it valuable to fly drones in the first place. So to reduce the the number of say people that have to be there and to make sure that drones are as valuable as possible, you know, we bring the artificial intelligence in so that the drones can fly themselves, so to speak. And so that the data can flag or so that a, an AI can flag an issue and bring that to the forefront. So you can, you can get more value and you can get faster value out of whatever data a drone would collect. The AI question is a good one in the sense that unmanned aircraft systems can benefit from AI on the data side and on the flight side. So the artificial intelligence helps reduce human error. And at some point it's going to help the drones actually fly themselves uh, in a way that's more scalable for the industry. There are two topics that I want to make sure that we get to before we end our conversation today. We'll get to the Vandas network here in just a moment. But Kenley, you've talked about training a couple of times today. Who are you training and what are the commercial and maybe career aspects that people maybe should be thinking about now in this field that's so new? It's a great question. Thank you. We're we're training a wide variety of people, actually. We've got people coming out of high school. We actually have currently uh, a pilot program going down uh, going on down in uh, at the Watford City CT Center called the the Bakken Area Skills Center, where we are training high school students uh, as part of, uh, concurrently with their with their high school um, programming, and they're right now they're they're working on their Part 107s, which which ultimately allows them to fly commercially, but will eventually move into more complicated uh, flight and and training in in BV loss and so and beyond visual line of sight and so on and so forth. Um, so we have high school students. We have people who are new. Newly out of high school, 
who are wanting to start a career, who are interested in this, who have and come to us. Are they getting jobs today? Yes. I, I mean, we don't have anybody that's not placed. So we, we are seeing success in that. The industry is, is picking up and continues to pick up. And we, we've really taken a proactive approach on our, on our training. You know, in the oil and gas industry, which is what we mainly focus on training out here in Williston, they want everything yesterday. And we're, we're behind on the training that needs to happen. UAS, we've been able to, to get slightly ahead of the game and be proactive. And so there's there's a balance there. But but yes, uh, they're, they're getting jobs. Uh, we have people who, who are starting their own businesses. Just finished training a, a gentleman in, in Beyond Visual Line of Sight who is starting his own business manufacturing his own drone as well as uh, flying and providing services for oil and gas companies on, on pipeline inspection. We had another company who sent us somebody who they wanted to start their own UAS sec, uh, sector within their company. And so they sent us a, a gentleman that they'd identified within their company as being uh, a good fit for that. We trained him up and he's now out there running their, their UAS sector. So uh, we, we get a really nice variety of people that are, that are going into it for different things. Onto the Vandas network that we've talked about earlier, and I would encourage people to go to VantasUAS.com to learn more. But the whole idea here, it seems to me, is to be able to fly a drone over the hill, so to speak. And this network's going to allow that to happen. Enlighten us. Yeah, so the Vantus network is ultimately provides the um, safety case as far as, as far as being able to see the airspace around you when you go over the hill not as in age, but uh, but visually over the hill. And then also the command and control aspect of being able to continue to command and control that UAS the further out that you get. And so it's, it's really just so key in being able to make uh, the use case of UAS unmanned uh, aircraft systems as efficient as possible to make the value proposition as high as you possibly can. If you're having to fly one mile stop put it down, drive a mile, and then fly another mile, you know, that gets pretty inefficient. And so being able to fly over the hill or beyond visual line of sight is a huge piece. And, and the Vantus network ultimately provides that capability to do that uh, efficiently and safely. Kenny, I'll give you the last word. If people need to learn or would like to learn more about the NDUAS Council, what should they do? Uh, they they should reach out to to our website or or just to Matt directly and to contact him. But uh, the, there's great opportunities to learn on on our website. It's www.nduas.org. There we go. www.nduas.org. You know, just getting a hold of of Matt myself. We're both on LinkedIn. We're both uh, all over the place. So you, anybody that wants to get a hold of us can can pretty easily find us if they just do a search for us. Gentlemen, this is the type of interview I love. I had a dozen more questions that we didn't get to. That means that we have to talk more about this in the future. Matt Dunleavy, he's a president and CEO of the NDA UAS Council, and Kenley Nebaker, he's the chairman of the NDUAS Council. To both of you, thank you for joining us on Main Street. Thank you, Craig. Thanks, Craig. More Main Streets ahead. Stay with us. The actor Daniel Kaluuya grew up in London. Now he's directing a story set in London public housing where people are resisting eviction. We wanted to explore and celebrate that and uh, show what is worth fighting for. The characters in a housing project called The Kitchen on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. 4 a.m. to 9 central here on Prairie Public. This is Dakota Datebook for January 17th. When the United States entered World War I, former President Teddy Roosevelt 
paid a visit to President Woodrow Wilson. He proposed raising a volunteer unit to join the war. He had done so years earlier during the Spanish-American War when he famously led the Rough Riders on a charge up San Juan Hill. Now he was looking to give it another go and join the war in France. Wilson and Roosevelt had a testy relationship. When a German submarine sank the Lusitania in 1915, Roosevelt stated that Wilson was cowardly for not immediately declaring war on Germany. The following year, he campaigned for Wilson's opponent in the presidential election. But now that the United States was at war, Roosevelt tried to reconcile with Wilson to get permission to raise a division. Roosevelt told Wilson, What I have said and thought, and what others have said and thought, is all dust in a windy street, if now we can make our message good. Roosevelt lobbied Congress, the Secretary of War, and the public. He even lobbied the French envoy. Wilson remained skeptical. He told his secretary, I really think the very best way to treat Mr. Roosevelt is to take no notice of him. Wilson stood his ground and refused Roosevelt's request. Wilson's refusal caused increased tension between the two men. Roosevelt said Wilson's New Year's message to Congress was a betrayal of democracy and called it false and empty rhetoric. Despite Roosevelt's favorable relationship with North Dakota, his remarks were not universally welcomed. On this date in 1918, the Botno Current called Wilson's message one of the grandest expressions of true Americanism ever delivered by a president. It was the newspaper's humble opinion that this Roosevelt person is absolutely unfit to preach patriotism. The relationship between Wilson and Roosevelt has been described as one of the bitterest presidential rivalries in American history. Neither man enjoyed a long and happy retirement. Roosevelt never recovered from his post-presidential expedition to the Amazon and died in 1919 at the age of 60. Wilson went on a strenuous tour of the country in support of the League of Nations. It was a grueling trip, and he suffered an incapacitating stroke. Less than three years after he left the White House, Wilson died at the age of 64. Today's Dakota Date Book was written by Carol Butcher. I'm Merrill Pipcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding from Humanities North Dakota. That's it for this Wednesday edition of Main Street. On today's All Things Considered, two million Gazans have been internally displaced during the war. We learn about the term voluntary migration and why that really hits a nerve. Tonight at 8 o'clock Central, 7 o'clock Mountain, it's travel with Rick Steves about how Spanish became the world's second most spoken language. Tomorrow on the show, Ashley, we're going to learn about the North Dakota League of Cities. And then Ashley will travel to the University of North Dakota and look at some more high-tech gadgetry. This thing can see and clean bacterial level things that may be displaced on, say, food counters and other places. That's coming up tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.